If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This is how I record my podcast and it has everything that I need. I've edited and added music all right from my phone. So get started with Anchor today. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. I'm sure most of you have heard this rhyme, but do you know what the origin is? Do you know who Lizzie Borden is? And do you know about the crime that she was accused of committing? Hello everyone, my name is Crystal and welcome to the Daily True Crime and Paranormal Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the Lizzie Borden case. But before we get started, I just want to note that this case is super frustrating. The timeline doesn't make sense. There wasn't very much record keeping. There are large chunks of time missing. Diving into this case will drive you mad because you go looking for information and there really isn't any. I went to several sites. I even looked at a few books and there's a lot of speculation, but there's not a whole lot of facts. So what I decided to do is just to follow the timeline of the case as I found it. At the end, it'll be up to you to decide if Lizzie Borden actually murdered her parents, had an accomplice, or if she is innocent. Lizzie Borden was born in 1860. Her name was Elizabeth Andrew Borden. She was born to Andrew and Sarah Borden. She had an older sister, Emma, who was born in 1851. They lived in a town called Fall River in Massachusetts. It was an outpost to the Plymouth Colony when it first started, and as it grew, it became a cotton textile. It was well known for the cotton textile industry. By the 19th century, it had over a hundred mills in operation. Even with the demise of the local productions, this is the town's longest lasting legacy, aside from the Borden murders, of course. The Bordens were pretty well liked among the townspeople there. Lizzie was probably the least favorite, and we're going to get into why in a little bit. But for the most part, the Bordens were well known. They were a rich social family, and they had a lot of friends. So let's get back into the timeline. On March 26th of 1863, Sarah Borden dies. The family is, of course, devastated. I'm pretty sure this affected her daughters in a way that we can't even comprehend. They were still young, and it was really hard not to have a mother, especially back then. It's always hard not to have a mom, but back then it was was really hard not to have that influence in your life. It was just two years later that Andrew married a woman named Abby. Now, in between when Abby and Andrew got married 
and the year of 1887, it seemed like something happened between Abby and Lizzie because Lizzie just decided one day she was going to quit calling Abby mother. Nobody really knows what happened. No one knows what caused the rift. She just decided, you're not my mother and I'm not going to address you as that anymore. Family life was relatively quiet for the longest time. No major incidents happened and it seemed like they had a normal life. So in 1889, Bridget Sullivan, an Irish immigrant, starts working inside the Borden home as a maid. It is around this time that Lizzie's accused of stealing from a local merchant. So people are kind of looking at her as an accused thief. They feel like they can't trust her. So when a daytime robbery of the Borden home happened on June 24, 1891, Lizzie was the prime suspect. Everybody suspected her. It should be noted that Lizzie was not the only one home that day. Emma and Bridget were also home, but nobody thought to, to ask them if they had seen anything or if they had taken the money. And from that point on, every door at the Borden home was kept locked. And for this case, that is a very important detail. Keep in mind that every single door of the Borden home was kept locked. So now at this point, Lizzie has a bad reputation. She's not seen as an outstanding citizen. She's a suspected thief. She doesn't like her stepmother. People just are kind of weary of her. So it really didn't surprise anyone when in April, 1892, a cloak maker by the name of Hannah Gifford told people that Lizzie told her, Abby is a mean old thing. Hearing things like this certainly didn't endear Lizzie to the townspeople anymore. So again, they were looking at Lizzie in distrust and distaste, and it really just didn't help her around town. So around July 21st, 1892, there's a family disagreement, and Lizzie and Emma leave Fall River to travel to New Bedford. It's not clear what the argument is about, what was said, who started it, and it's also not clear what happened after they returned home. It just seemed like life picked up again, and they returned as normal as you can when you're a dysfunctional family. August 2nd of 1892, we have to jump to August 2nd because there's really no information between July and August 2nd. So Abby and Andrew wake up and they're both complaining of stomach sickness. Abby goes and visits the family doctor, Dr. Bowen, and she tells him she thinks she may be poisoned. But Dr. Bowen kind of just dismisses her and tells her, no, Abby, you're just sick. Your stomach is bothering you. Go home and rest. You have not been poisoned. That incident with the doctor makes the next day's events even more strange. What Lizzie is allegedly doing the next morning is really weird in hindsight. August 3rd, early in the morning, Lizzie reportedly tries to buy some poison from one Eli Bentz at D.R. Smith's drugstore. She is not able to get the poison. She is turned away. Why is she buying poison, allegedly? It's really strange considering that just the day before, her stepmother is telling their doctor, I'm pretty sure I was poisoned. So we're going to fast forward to the afternoon of August 3rd. Lizzie's uncle and friend, 
of the Bordens arrives. His name is John Morse, and he's there to stay with the Bordens. After he arrives, Lazy goes to visit her friend, Alice Russell, and she's talking about just how bad her household is. She's telling her that it's not very good, but she's also telling Alice things like she fears being poisoned and that her father has enemies. She tells Alice that she's seen suspicious characters around the family house and says, quote, I'm afraid that someone will do something. I think it's really weird she's talking about poison here. Who is going to talk about poison after trying to buy some that morning? Again, that is if she actually did. Remember, Lizzie is not looked upon very fondly by these people in town. She is looked down upon, really. But if she did, why is she talking about poison? Is this to throw Alice off if something ever happens? And who are these characters she speaks of? It's all just really, really strange timing. Every time I read this case, I wonder what Alice is thinking the entire time her friend is telling her that she's afraid of being poisoned and that her father has enemies and there's strange people around their house. So we're going to go to the morning of August 4th. This is the absolute most important morning of this entire case. Abby, Andrew, and John eat breakfast. A little while after, John and Andrew go and speak to each other in the sitting room. Abby is beginning her chores at this moment, and Bridget, the maid, is said to go out into the backyard and get sick to her stomach. This little detail stuck out to me because we have chunks of time missing. But someone made note that Bridget is in the backyard getting sick to her stomach. Why was that important enough to note? But days and sometimes even a week are missing in the records. I'll never know and I don't think anyone will ever know. So John leaves the house at 845 and not long after that Andrew leaves and he's taking some letters with him that Lizzie asked him to mail. So this is a seemingly once again normal day for this family. Bridget and Abby are doing chores. Lizzie is doing whatever Lizzie does. Andrew's leaving the house. John Morse has obviously got some business while he's in town. Around 9.30, Abby is upstairs cleaning and Bridget is outside cleaning windows for the next hour. It is within that hour that Abby is brutally murdered with an axe while cleaning the guest room. She is given 19 blows to the back of her head. When she is found, she is face down with her waist in the air and her head is caved in. This attack was truly, truly vicious. I would say overkill. Whoever did this was an absolutely angry person and they wanted Abby dead clearly. Let's skip to the same day at around 11 a.m. Andrew returns home carrying a package. Bridget lets him into the house and she says at this point she hears a faint laugh from upstairs. So is it normal for Bridget to let Andrew into the house or were there circumstances such as he forgot his key or she was standing by the door and she just happened to let him in as he came in? Because once again that's kind of a weird detail that Bridget just happened to be there by the door while Andrew was coming in. So Lizzie talks to her father briefly in the dining room and she tells him 
Abby has received a message and has left the house. So Andrew says okay and he goes and lies down in the sitting room. At this point, Bridget goes to rest in the attic where her room is. That's where she stays. Andrew is murdered shortly after on the sitting room sofa. Here is where things get a little bit murky for me. Lizzie is said to call for Bridget saying someone killed her father. And it seems like she's calm. It just reads like she's calm. Oh, Bridget, someone killed my dad. And that's the strangest thing to me. Lizzie then tells a neighbor of theirs, Adelaide Churchill, that she had been in the barn looking for irons for an upcoming fishing trip at the time of the murders. At 11.15, police are notified of the murders. It's very important to mention that Emma is not home during all this. She is out of town and she is never considered a suspect any time during the investigation or the trial. But I just think it's really weird that Lizzie is able to murder her dad, hide the axe, change her clothes, call Bridget, and talk to the neighbor, all before the cops show up. Now, for all I know, the cops showed up two hours later, but if you know how clothing is in the 1800s, there are layers, so it probably took her a little bit to change clothes. So this is just really weird to me. Lizzie's the murderer, and she was able to do all this within a relatively short time span. It just, it doesn't really hold water for me at, at this point. So during the rest of that day, there are dozens of policemen in and out of the Borden home. Doctors are called in, and they po and they perform post-mortem, post-mortem, geez, sorry, on the bodies on the dining room table. Can you imagine just... In your house and your parents brutally murdered bodies are just laying on your dining room table I cannot fathom it and while all that is going on Lizzie is being interrogated by Deputy Marshal Fleet Lizzie is said to be detached from the situation the way she's talking is really detached it's very calm it's like she doesn't care until Fleet calls Abby her mother and Lizzie reportedly says, she's not my stepmother. She's not my mother. She's my stepmother. And police are like, well, that's weird. You just go from having no emotion to having a huge burst of emotion. And so they're seeing red flags around her behavior. They're thinking to themselves, these events are horrific. And here you are totally calm until someone calls your stepmother, your mother. So on August 6th, remember this is just, what, two days after the murder, a local newspaper criticizes the police because there is an action on the boarding case. I don't know what this newspaper really wanted of them. Did they think they were just going to walk in the house and arrest everybody and say, okay, we caught the murderers? I just, I don't understand what their thinking was. That same day, a funeral service is held for Abby and Andrew at the boarding home. I just wanted to do a quick note here. The investigation is really shoddy. As I mentioned a minute ago, there are hardly any records and what there are is sparse. They're missing crucial details and it seems like it was really rushed and it was obvious from the beginning they had a suspect and that suspect was most likely Lizzie. So let's go to August 7th. Emma walks into the kitchen and she sees Lizzie burning a blue dress in the kitchen this is in their fireplace in the kitchen. So that's, that's so strange. And when she's 
questioned about it, Lizzie says there were paint stains on it. But of course the police are like, those are probably blood stains and she's burning evidence. I just want to know if my family members were murdered, I would do everything in the world I could not to bring suspicion to myself, especially if I murdered them. And burning a dress in the middle of your kitchen is pretty suspicious. So let's jump ahead to August 9th. An inquest is held on the murders. This inquest is not public. Nobody knows what was said. Nobody knows what was presented. It was a very private ordeal. The next thing that the public knew was that Lizzie was arrested on August 11th by Marshall Hillard. Then the next time that I was able to find information is August 12th. Lizzie enters a plea of not guilty and she's moved to a town eight miles north of Fall River. She sits in that jail from August or until August 22nd. During the 22nd, 23rd, a preliminary hearing is held. I just, what is going on here? What happened to her? Was she allowed to speak to a lawyer? Did family visit her? Did the police interrogate her? That is a lot of missing time. We're talking from the 12th to the 22nd. And I couldn't find really any information on that. So back to the preliminary hearing. Judge Josiah Bladesell finds that there is probable cause to try Lizzie for murder. So we're going from a week after the murders, Lizzie is arrested or yeah, arrested, sorry. And then there's a private inquest, Lizzie's arrested, and then there's a preliminary hearing. This is pretty fast considering that there doesn't seem to be any evidence other than Lizzie burning her dress and being home at the time that she committed these murders. Now, I searched and searched and searched and searched and searched and I didn't really find any information about what went on other than Alice Russell, Lizzie's friend, and Bridget were both taken on the stand. And I found that this happened at the end of November 1892. Alice tells the jury all about Lizzie's fears of poisoning her father's enemies and she mentions this happened before the night of the murders. The grand jury issues an indictment against Lizzie for murder two days later, pretty much based on she burned a dress, she was in the house, and her friend said she was talking weird the day before. June 5th, 1893. The trial for Lizzie Borden opens at the New Bedford Courthouse. This trial is a sensation. It's a national sensation. It pretty much turns into a circus, at least a circus for that time. And everybody is watching this. June 20th, 1893, the jury returns its verdict. And that verdict is that Lizzie Borden is not guilty. There really was no evidence beyond a shadow of a doubt that Lizzie committed these murders. So they couldn't get her there and she had a great legal team. Remember, she's wealthy. She had a great, great legal team. She also had the support from organizations like the Women's Christian Temperance Union Suffrages, which women couldn't be on trial or on juries, but they could let their voices be heard. And it seemed like they had some sway there. It's just 
baffling to me how quickly everything just fell into place and how quickly this town decided Lizzie was guilty. I mean, it's really unheard of back then that women were even accused of these kinds of crimes. No one could fathom a woman committing this kind of crime. So everybody had their opinion. Everybody was reading about it. It it was just crazy. But I personally find it really hard to believe that Lizzie at least committed these murders by herself. I just don't believe that it was Lizzie and Lizzie alone. So my questions are, did Emma know more than she knew, than she let on? Did she pretend that she didn't know what was going on? I've often wondered, did she leave town and allowed Lizzie to commit the murders by herself? What about Bridget? Bridget was there almost every single day. I'm sure she got time off and she ran errands and she had her own life and her own friends, but she was there almost every single day. She was there the day of the murders. Granted, people were like she was outside washing windows, but she didn't see anybody leave. She didn't see anybody come. She didn't see anything. She didn't hear anything. I'm not really convinced at all that Lizzie did this by by herself. And I feel like Bridget and maybe even Emma at least knew more than they ever told. Now, there are a lot of conspiracies surrounding this case. And one of the biggest is that Andrew Borden had an illegitimate son. And there's actually some evidence that there wasn't a son out there. Now, I found two different things relating to the son, two different names relating to the son. The first one, there's really no evidence that he existed, but I'm going to share some about him anyway. So there are some letters that were not seen for many years, but they give us a better look into some of the things. One anonymous letter reads, Whiskey done the deed, not me. Another confession was written by a man named Knowlton, and it was dated eight days after the murders. And he was claiming to be the illegitimate son of victim Andrew Jackson Borden. That's how it was written. And a woman later committed to an insane asylum. Writing this letter from an Albany hotel, he said that Abby convinced her husband to make an agreement to pay his son a yearly stipend for his silence. His letter was like filled with errors and odd spellings and styles but that's just like the way it was back then but I guess police picked up on that they didn't take him credible so he was just brooding over his and his mother's troubles and this made him want to get vengeance on his father and he wrote quote with the result known to all signing the letter Philip Gordon Reed so this letter is just again they didn't they didn't take it serious but he said in it that he disposed of the weapon a lather's hatchet by dropping it from a steamboat at a dock in the seaside mill town no use to track me for it will be an utter impossibility to do so an hour at this hour this letter is mailed i shall take a train hundreds of miles away. There's no historical record that Knowlton is Borden's son or any evidence that he actually existed. Most of the 
the letter actually has untrue information, such as it said there were 40 wax. No, no, wait, 41. But we know that Abby's body bore 19 wounds, and they were each described in her autopsy. We also know that Andrew was struck 10 times in the head. And of course, the killer said otherwise. Supposed killer. He also said that Andrew actually died before Abby, but an analysis of the context of their stomachs show that Abby was actually killed at least an hour before Andrew. That's just some of the facts that these letters got wrong. And it's most likely that the letter writer was looking for their 15 minutes of fame. It's a common occurrence for people to try to get attention for murders. I don't understand it, but it's very common. So whether Lizzie killed her parents alone, had help with that illegitimate brother, we don't know. She lived a quiet life until the age of 67 and she died in 1927. She stayed in that town, her and Emma, and I don't know how they did it. It's, it's very strange to me that she continued to live in a town where people stared at her and probably mocked her and thought she killed her parents. She's a stronger woman than I am. Let's get back to this illegitimate son. There is another name, as I said earlier, William Borden, and that name was actually brought into the mix by author Arnold R. Brown. He claims that William is the illegitimate son of Andrew and that William's mother is in fact Andrew's sister-in-law, Phoebe. William was born in 1856 and there's no birth certificate because back then they didn't really openly record those births in public, but it is supposedly acknowledged that William did exist. It is believed at the time of the murders that William did have contact with Andrew over financial obligations that William felt Andrew owed him. So the whole Borden family is aware of this connection and he was active in keeping the truth, you know, under wraps. And it's theorized by the author, Arnold Brown, that on the days of the murder, William had stopped by the house to meet with Andrew to discuss an inheritance situation. Brown states, at the time of the murders, William Borden was making demands of his father. And for whatever reason, Lizzie's uncle, was mediator and Lizzie was actually also involved. She was involved in the arrangement as a go-between of some sort. Brown believes that Lizzie suspected William committed the crime, but really didn't want to divulge into the circumstances of why he was at the house and his family connection. She just kept it quiet, allegedly. Well, an unknown man was reported lurking around the house at the time of the murders but was never identified and he's kind of just left in a mystery and many people don't even realize that there was reportedly a man seen around the house. So what happened to William? It's believed that he spent time after the murders and before his death in the insane asylum for having a mental illness. He was living with his wife Rebecca on an apple farm in Massachusetts at the time of his death and he reportedly committed suicide on April 7, 1901 on his farm. People who knew him described him as eccentric, avoiding social contact, and an eyewitness actually said that he told him of the threats toward the family and actually showed him the hatchet. 
Now, we don't know if William Borden is the real killer, and it'll probably never be known, but he did have a motive, and he did have possible access to the victims, and he did seem pretty capable of it. Could William and Lizzie have gone together? Could she have promised him part of the inheritance? Let's go back to Bridget. Was Bridget part of this plan with the siblings? Emma? It just gets really murky because William easily could have killed this family, except for one small detail. They kept the doors locked. So if Lizzie, Emma, and Bridget were not in on the murders and they didn't know that William was going to show up that day, how did he get into the house? I don't know. Another theory that is popular and has gained a lot of traction is that Lizzie was having an affair with Bridget and that Abby walked in on them at one point. And believers of this theory think Lizzie told her father, I'm sleeping with the Irish maid and stepmother caught me with her, so I had to kill her. That was the excuse she gave her dad and her dad didn't buy it, so she had to murder him as well. There's really no evidence of this theory. I think odds are the Bordens were killed for money. Lizzie was supposedly angry that Abby was married to her father and she was going to get the money and she felt cheated. So I think it's very possible that Lizzie herself or Lizzie and Bridget and Emma and possibly William hatched a plan to kill the parents and split the money. I think we can all admit that this case is one that just sticks with you because the murders were vicious, the details are murky, so many people believe Lizzie did it, but so many believe she did not do it, and it's just really hard to wrap your head around the idea that someone was capable of such a horrific act. I think Lizzie Borden did commit these murders, that's just my opinion, but I think she had help. I think there were at least two accomplice, accomplice, <laughs> at least two people who helped her and that she lived her life as normal as she could. She got the inheritance. The estate went to Lizzie when her parents died and her and Emma, after she was acquitted and her and Emma moved into another house. So I really think at the end of the day, at the end of the day, this is about money, plain and simple. Now, the podcast is called Daily True Crime and Paranormal. So sometimes I'm going to marry paranormal with the true crime, and sometimes I'm just going to have true crime, and sometimes I'm just going to have paranormal. And I can actually marry the paranormal with this case because Lizzie Borden's house is said to be very haunted. It is a bed and breakfast now, and it bears the name of Lizzie herself. You can go in there and it looks just the way it did on the day of the murders. None of the furniture is original, but the owners have made it look very, 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 very authentic. They even have pictures of Abby and Andrew dead in the rooms where they were killed. You can even have a breakfast exactly like Lizzie ate. Lizzie is said to be seen in this house. As a ghost, she appears to people. The alarm is said to go off by itself around 3 a.m. and people cannot explain why, and it happens often. There are bumps, footsteps, voices. People think that Lizzie is there trying to prove her innocence. Other people believe she's there because she murdered them and she's feeling guilty. 
And yet other people believe that it is actually Abby and Andrew who's haunting this, trying to let their story be heard. This house is even featured on Travel Channel's Ghost Adventures, and they seemingly caught a lot of evidence. Maybe one day I'll get to visit it. But until then, and I can tell you what I find, you can look at stories and pictures online and see for yourself if you believe the stories and pictures are authentic. All I can say at the end of this is that this case is one that has always stuck with me. The murders were committed by someone who was angry and who wanted to inflict as much pain as they could. And this affected the entire town. As I said at the beginning of the episode, the Bordens were well known. They were wealthy. People loved them. And so the town still reels from these murders to this day. Everyone knows Lizzie's name. And I would say a majority of people that I've spoken to believe Lizzie committed these murders. What do you think? Did Lizzie commit these murders? Was she capable of it? Did she do it herself? We may never know. There's a lot of stories out there and a lot of, of theories out there, but the truth of it is that records were not kept in a manner to actually give us a real, honest to true look at this case. We can only go by what we find and the findings point to Lizzie at least knew her parents were going to be murdered that day and that they ended in a very brutal way. Until next time, you can follow me on Facebook at Daily True Crime and Paranormal. That's my page. It's the same as the podcast, and I hope that you follow me there. Thank you. Bye.